Brahma Chaloka Dipati Sahampati Tatanjali Anadivarang Ayachata Santi Dasata Parajakajatika Dese to Dhammang Anukam Pimampajang Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami I like to bring the Buddha's voice into everything. And this is a time when we have so many mirrors around us, mirrors of action. Even if we're not able to visit each other, travel very much, go to work, go to school, socialize, so many things. And people might be impatient, restless, anxious, fearful, aggressive, or kind, extra kind, extra grateful, extra helpful. The scale of ways of being and mirrors of activity that we meet, even just staying in the monastery. Previously, if we needed medicine, though we live about 15 kilometers from the nearest town, they would never deliver. But during COVID, they didn't care. They just, yes, we'll deliver. They were intent on delivering. And we would repeat our address. Are you sure? We're in the rural, it's far. No, we're coming. Little things like that, so beautiful. So much kindness and then the opposite. So much ugliness even between people and violence. So there's a beautiful sutta in which the Buddha gives a list of how we should behave in the face of what others are doing. But many of the qualities that are listed are not the best qualities. But of course, we want to uh, mimic or mirror the the activities, the actions of other people when they're inspiring to us. And we want to remember when somebody else acts towards us in a way that is abusive or violent or um, unskillful, unwholesome in any way, even if it's just uh, giving us an unfriendly look. We want to practice more and more not to return that, 
not to be influenced by that. We may be impacted, but not to allow that to pollute our own goodness and our own ability to bring forward actions which are healing and blessing towards others. Not always easy. That's why we practice. We practice in easy conditions or easier conditions or conditions that we think we control. Why do we do that? We do that so that when we're out in, in the unpredictable situations with people who do not have sila samwara, they don't restrain their minds, they don't train their minds, and they may do anything. They may say anything. Recently, we had a very violent person who was wandering around in our area and the police were searching for him. We didn't know until after, but our whole world is full of people that are armed and do not have control over their minds, do not have the understanding of what is decent, what is wholesome, what is skillful, what is benevolent, because they're suffering. They themselves have been impacted from their own lives. It's all conditioned. So the best response we can have is compassion. But it's easy to default to fear. And we have to remember that fear is the absence of love. When there's fear, there isn't love. And what do we fear the most? What do we fear the most? I think we fear, I'll quote Anthony DeMello on this one, we fear love. We fear that unconditional love because we have to give it. And we're not there yet. We have to be able to love with forgiveness in the face of anything. Even death, to love the dying moment. That's why we're here. We practice dying every day. We contemplate death. In fact, we are dying every day, whether we know it or not, whether we recognize that or not. We're dying every day. And so the Buddha's teaching becomes urgent. It's a, a Samwega teaching. It's emergency. And the beauty of emergency teaching is that there's emergency practice. And the beauty of emergency practice is that we are emerging every moment with, with what we desire, with what we wish we could complete. So if we're wishing for peace, then our intention will be towards peace. And we will fulfill the skillful intention of renunciation. We will fulfill the skillful intention of benevolence towards others. And we will fulfill the skillful intention of compassion towards others. So this is um, from the Saleka Sutta. Practicing effacement. And effacement is uh, something that we should all practice. It's selflessness. 
It's thinking about how we want to form and train our, our minds, our, our mental actions, because thoughts are mental actions and intentions are mental activities. And be, behind speech and behind action are these formations in the mind, these mental states. If we're not aware of them and we don't try to um, purify them, then we're not working deeply to create the conditions for peace. The Blessed One said, now Chunda, here, effacement should be practiced by you. Others will inflict harm and we shall not inflict harm. Effacement should be practiced in this way. Others will destroy life. We shall abstain from the destruction of life. Effacement should be practiced in this way. Others will take what is not given. We shall abstain from taking what is not given. Effacement should be practiced in this way. Now, you're going to say, aha, I know what that is. He's telling the five precepts. Yes, the five precepts are the foundation stone for daily life, for household life. We have our foundation stone in the Patimoka for bhikkhunis. And each of us in the fourfold assembly have a foundation stone. It's our touchstone for Nibbana, and it's our precepts. That's why we study the Dhamma and we study the Vinaya, so that we can realize how deep we have to go to purify the mind. We have to purify everything we speak and do, but everything we do mentally has to be purified too. And this is what this sutta is pointing out. And he goes on, others will be uncelibate, we shall be celibate. And of course, for non-monastics, that would be, we would be faithful in relationship. Others will speak falsehood, we shall not speak falsehood. Others shall speak divisively, and we will speak undivisively. We will abstain from divisive speech. Others will speak harshly. We will abstain from harsh speech. Others will indulge in idle chatter. We will abstain from idle chatter. Now, of course, these are the four ways of wrong speech. Others will be covetous, and we will abstain from being covetous. Now he's going into the greed, hatred, or ill will. Others will have ill will, we will be benevolent. Others will have wrong view, we will have right view. And right view comes most definitely through meditation practice, but not always. We need a good guide to make sure we're not just treading water in our meditation, but that we're actually diving into the depths and understanding how the mental process works. Just like when you sail a boat. If the boat is in the field, it's not going anywhere. 
but if you put it in the water and you pull up your sails and you can get some wind in your sails, you're going to move. And the same is true. If we have right view, then when we meditate and we're investigating our experience properly and we're not lingering in memories or clinging to the past or longing for the future or following our greed, our ill will, our unwholesome states of mind, if we're able to sweep all the kilesas aside and stay in the purity of the breath, and ride the breath like a vehicle, like a boat, to a, a deeper level, until we experience less and less of this self and this clinging, then right view will begin to unfold in front of us. Others will be of wrong intention. We will be of right intention. Others will be of wrong speech. We shall be of right speech. Others will be of wrong action. We will be of right action. Others will be of wrong livelihood. We will be of right livelihood. This is a very, uh, perhaps, it's a, all of these. Of course, he's going through the Eightfold Noble Path. Others will be of wrong effort. We will be of right effort. Others will be of wrong mindfulness. We will be of right mindfulness. Others will be of wrong concentration. We will be of right concentration. And here's an area that needs special guidance. Make sure that you have a good guide because everyone has the ability to experience the calm in the heart. If we can be guided, we need the map. The Buddha gives us a good map. We need a living guide to point out to us uh-uh, you took a wrong turn there. And we have to be willing to receive feedback, no matter how long we've been practicing. I wanted to mention with right livelihood, it's a good thing to survey what we're doing with our lives. How do you feel about your work? Do you love your work? Do you feel good at work? whether you're now probably working at home, but do you feel a, a joy? Do you feel aligned with the results of your work? Does it feel wholesome? And if it doesn't, that bears investigating. Really, if your livelihood is not in, in alignment with your precepts, then definitely you must, as a disciple, as a son or a daughter of the Buddha, you must contemplate the importance of choosing something else. Just wanted to mention that. Others will be of wrong knowledge. We will be of right knowledge. Others will be of wrong liberation. We will be of right liberation. What are we freeing here? We're not freeing ourselves from keeping rules. Rather, we're, we're aligning ourselves with a whole system of Vinaya, of sila, of practicing virtue, so that we can protect ourselves and protect others. And if we can't follow the precepts, we have to look at that. Because right liberation is not, well, I'm free to do what I want. That's definitely not it. 
we will, others will be overcome by dullness. We will not. Others will be restless. We will try not to be restless. We will work with our restlessness and try to calm it and bring the mind to more still and steadfast states so that we can go deeper and understand our true nature more and more and more, get to the foundation, the fount, fathoming of our experience. Others will be doubters. We shall go beyond doubt. Oh, that's a very big one. Doubt, a rascal that sneaks in. It's one of the cleverest forms that Mara has. If we get caught up in doubt, we can't, we can't swim across this sea of turbulence in the mind. We need to be confident. We need to develop the faith. If we have true faith in, in the Buddha, why wouldn't we have faith in the Buddha who accomplished the path completely and had enough compassion to teach it to us here and now? And you'll say, what? What do you mean? Oh, the Buddha is here with me in this boat. I say, why? Because the Dhamma is here in my heart. And the Buddha left the Dhamma as his heir. So what a compassionate thing he did for the whole world. If each of us follows his instructions, it's like we carry the, carry the Buddha with us day by day, breath by breath, step by step. We're never alone. We always have the Buddha. That's how I can still be here. I've been through a lot. <laughs> And I always had the Buddha as my best friend. And that was such a blessing. It still is a blessing for us now because just two of us here on this property trying to run things. So that's why without doubt, we can do a lot. With doubt, we are in prison. Others will be angry. We will not be angry. Now, this is a time when there's so much expression of anger. We have to be so careful not to follow anger and not to mimic anger and not to allow the threads of anger which still devolve within us to leak. That's what the Sila Samara can do. Even if we feel some kind of frustration, irritation, or aversion for a person, or for a situation for ourselves. We must restrain that and not allow that to be translated into speech or action or even thought. Because if we do, we create karma. We create karma for ourselves and we can possibly harm someone. So if others are angry, we try to mirror peace to them as much as we can. And that could be difficult, especially if they're committing acts of violence. Often I sit in the temple or in any of the buildings and imagine if somebody were to come in and point a gun at me, what would I do? Because that happened to my first teacher, my Baba in India. He was shot and he died soon after, 
And he said to the shooter, you poor man, you're going to go to jail for this. So I, I took that as his last teaching to me, that I too might be shot. And what will I feel for the shooter? I'm practicing to be compassionate in that moment. Others will be hostile. We will not be hostile. Another level of practice. We see so much hostility now. I've had a lot of hostility aimed at me when I was a young nun walking Bindabad in my robes. Sometimes people would drive by and spit. And I didn't have a, a sangha at that time. And at other times too, when I was in other countries, I've had people to avoid meeting me on the street, walk around me in a big circle, like walk out onto the street to avoid passing me on the sidewalk, as if I would contaminate them. And it wasn't COVID time either. It's because fear, fear is the absence of love. What we don't know is fearful, so we try to avoid it. But we try so hard to avoid it that we begin to hate it. The hatred is an accelerated, it ex hatred and fear together, it's like a, a grenade. And if it explodes within us, the karma of that is, it can be frightening to ourselves and to others. So the Buddha says others will be denigrators and we will not be denigrators. If others do terrible things, may we not denigrate them. May we try to have compassion because if they knew the results of their acts, if they knew the suffering it would cause, maybe they would still do it, but it would be just from deep ignorance, sheer ignorance, inability to see the karmic wreckage that they're creating for themselves. Others will be insolent, we will not. Others will be miserly, we will not. Now that's a very interesting one. Living as we do on the kindness and generosity of others. Every day somebody comes and brings us offerings or offers what food is here. And sometimes it's amazing to see some people bring just a little bit, not really enough for two people to have a meal. And some people bring so much we couldn't possibly eat it. And it's unpredictable. So we don't really know who's gonna bring what. It's a very interesting practice. And I've noticed how easy it is for the mind to swing in the direction of judging. Oh, that person wasn't very generous. And trying to catch that. Come on, they came all the way here. They brought whatever they could. It's an offering. Don't judge it. It's a gift. Life brings us so many things we don't want. Life brought us COVID. Did we want this? Did we ask for it? It's a killer. It could kill us. It's killed so many people, hundreds of thousands of people. But we've also learned. It's also been our teacher. So the person who gives us a small gift is a giver not a killer. 
So we have to think in the most positive way possible rather than judge. And we have to be very sharp and mindful of what is arising in the mind so that we can cut it before it actually takes hold of the mind. Others will be fraudulent. We will not be fraudulent. Others will be deceitful. We will not be deceitful. Others will be arrogant. We shall not be arrogant. That's, that's arrogance creeps in so easily. We received a, an, a message from a young boy that wants to come and train here. And uh, he said, I would be very humbled if I could come and train as a monk with you. Of course, we have to write to him and tell him we don't train monks. But it was just so touching the way he said, I would be humbled. I felt this is someone very worthwhile, such a beautiful ethos in his message. So if we could practice more humility, others will be difficult to admonish. We will not be difficult to admonish. I always tell Aya Anaruda, please tell me what I've done wrong. And she doesn't want to. <laughs> But it's good for me. Uh, otherwise, I'm always telling her. And it has to be reciprocal. Because just because I've been a nun for longer, I'm just as subject to being admonished or being warned or being given, give, being given feedback. You did this and you didn't do that. Why? Or your robes are uneven. Remember the example of Sariputta being admonished by a young novice of seven that his robe was crooked. And he thanked him and straightened his robe. He was an arhant. Oh, what to say of one just striving for the goal? We must be easy to admonish and take everyone as our teacher, even the so-called bad guys. We take the good and the bad, as Ajahn Chah said, Everything is there to teach us, everything. Every condition, COVID or not, is there. Riots or not, is there. Hunger or not, is there. Generosity or not, is there, as our teacher. Others will have bad friends. We shall have good friends. We will try to have good friends and we will try to be a good friend. Of course, there are suttas on each of these. There's a whole sutta about good friendship. There's a whole sutta about insolence. There's a whole sutta about removing the stains. And this is the, the sutta on the effacement of everything. Others will be heedless. We shall be heedful. Of course, the benefits, the basket, of the tripitika is, is there for, for us to free us if we can practice it and embody it. And it's there for our freedom. So if we're heedful, if we're not heedful, then we can't be free. So heedfulness is the path to the deathless. And heedlessness 
is the path to death. Others will be faithless. We shall have faith. So we live on faith. It's, it's quite an incredible thing to live on faith. And I've lived on faith, the faith that people will come and feed me for 32 years. I was only really hungry once, and it was because there was a landslide and people couldn't get to me. But even then, it wasn't, I wasn't really hungry. You can go for quite a long time and not eat. The water is important. But we can endure a lot of hunger. So then in that moment, I had the joy of realizing that I had taken these precepts unconditionally, not on condition that the Buddha feeds me. And that's what helped me gain courage to endure that hunger. Others will be shameless. We will not be shameless. If we have shame, then that's a good quality because if we have a sense of shame, then we can get back on the path. If we have no sense of shame, then we're really lost. That's what this means. To be shameless means you have no sense of shame when you've done wrong and when you've, when you've gotten the boat up on rocks, you've been a wreck. So to get back out into clear water without uh, perforating the hull of the boat and drowning. We need shame, a sense of shame, a sense of hiri otapa, moral shame and a fear, a con conscientiousness not to repeat the wrongs, the failings, the weaknesses, not to practice those, but to set them aside and restrain our minds so that we can be more and more heedful. Others will have no fear of wrongdoing. We will have fear of wrongdoing. And that's one of the goads of the monastic life is that we have the fear of, of because we realize the danger of the slightest fault in our practice. Others will be of little learning. We shall study hard. Others will be lazy, we will be energetic. Others will be unmindful, we will be mindful. Others will be foolish, we will try to develop wisdom. That's why we're here. We're working to be wise. We want to live and die with wisdom. Others will adhere to their own views tenaciously and relinquish them with difficulty. And we will not cling to our old wrong views. We will let them go so that we can see the truth of the Dhamma and follow it. And that's how we can relinquish. And coming to the relinquishment is how we can achieve the total effacement. And total effacement is the complete putting out of the flames of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's the total letting go. And that's Nibbana, here and now. Nibbana, the fullness of Nibbana one day. I think that's enough.
for this afternoon. Thank you so much for listening. Andamayam damakataya sadhu karanda dama sahe sadhu 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 So I know that was a long one, but it's rich and it's the whole path. No matter how long it takes, as Ajahn Chah said, we just keep going. We're here for this, nothing else. But if you have a question, I could try to answer it. When we talk about like the opposite of love, we normally talk about hatred. When we talk about the antidote of hatred, we talk about the metta sutta. Um, it was interesting to me that you said the opposite of love is fear. I said the absence. The absence. Fear is the absence of love. Oh, okay. But fear and and hatred are very they're cousins. Usually, hatred arises because there's some fear. If you really understand the truth of what you're seeing, then you wouldn't hate it because it's empty. Everything in this world is conditioned. It arises and ceases. It's just a passing thing. It's a passing show. It has no ultimate reality. But if we know, if we understand ultimate reality, then we understand the emptiness of all these experiences. And then we wouldn't identify with, and we wouldn't be able to feel hatred towards anything or fear of any we fear nothing it's a very profound state which is only realized at the third stage of uh, enlightenment the anagami goes beyond fear beyond hate beyond greed imagine if there was no more people in this world that had no hatred and they could Go around and spread that just by standing in a group because it, there's a magnetism there a field of energy gets generated i've been in the presence of people like that and like we had a month that came here at undone and for three weeks after he left we were like walking on air it was very magical his presence was so pure so very pure so, uh, yeah, they're connected and anything that pollutes or dilutes unconditional love goes in the direction of akusala. It's unwholesome. And it's the akusala in more in the, you know, even greed has hatred in it. Because there's, you're greedy for something because you hate being without it. You, you can't stand being with you. There's an aversion. You can't bear to be without it, so you're going to get it to satisfy this ill will that's being generated. Greed is the all-encompassing akusala. But then they're broken down in these ways that we can better get a sense of how we embody these unwholesome qualities and work with them. But if we can uproot craving, then the, the kilesas are destroyed.
but little by little, if we subdue the craving in the heart, then we can also weaken those kilesas so that we can create a field of waking up, awakening within us. I, um, I'm still working hospice and I saw a woman yesterday who's close to dying. Uh, she's 44 and um, she was just saying how scared she is of not knowing. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm. Just... It's difficult to practice the, this path. If we haven't practiced when we're healthy, uh, it's difficult to bring up these pointers, these suggestions to someone who has no idea of what this practice is about. But at the moment of, at the time of death, if they're receptive, Death is like a doorway to Nibbana. And if somebody can be quickly dusted off from their views and opinions about life and clinging to life and all that they're about to lose, if they can really get interested in studying the breath and diving into the depth of their own present moment awareness, they have a, an opportunity to die and free themselves from so much. But to die in fear is not, not such a beautiful thing. Maybe you could do a little meta meditation with her. Try to guide her to a state of gratitude for the blessings in her life and just sending her love to everyone and thanking them for their love. That would be a beautiful thing for her if she's willing. I'll explore that with her. Thank you. I'd like to ask a question. In sitting practice and cultivating awakening factors, it's mindfulness and, and investigation and energy, it, it seems intuitive how, how to actively work with those. When it comes to joy and the transition into the calming factors. I wonder if you could talk about the cultivation of joy and tranquility as far as receptive versus more active and and what that looks like and feels like. The first factors of mindfulness investigation and energy are very much they're dynamic. So they are the, like the engines, right? And then the other factors are more the product. It's like starting to make tracks. So if you focus properly, appropriately on developing those qualities, well, you, you have to use all of those qualities. It's not a linear thing. It's like you, you collect these energies and, and these efforts at each bojanga, each one of them, it's like different ingredients that you you put into your project. Supposing you're a cook and you, you want to make a delicious meal, so you want to make sure it's balanced and you, you have your carbos and your protein and your greens and maybe a little dessert. The mindfulness 
is the, the leader, the guardian. Okay, the captain of the ship, let's go, we're, we're starting. And then into that mindfulness, you have to be rightly mindful. You have to know that your mindfulness is correct, is accurate, that it will precipitate a, a very refined and developed way of investigating your experience non-conceptually, non-conceptually, not through thought, but through tasting, through actualizing, through embodying your experience of the moment and not sliding off into the past or the future and being very diligent and continuous in how you stay present. Now, if you're able to investigate in that way with a real solid kind of entry into the breath or into the present moment awareness of what is arising in consciousness, then that in itself will start to turn the engine more and more and more. You'll develop energy from that. Up to that point, we're putting in efforts. We're, we're having to focus our minds and intend very strongly. But there comes a time where there's this chemical reaction, so to speak, where the energy within the heart is ignited by right mindfulness and right investigation, which steady the mind, then your, your energy faculty is going, 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 and suddenly it's self-igniting. You don't have to do anything special. You're just surrendering yourself to a process. And the bojanga begin to enlighten that process. So if you have self in there, that's not going to work. It has to come from a place of giving yourself totally to being in the experience. Your, your commitment is complete. It's 100%. You're not distracted in any way, not a thread of attention going out to any other form, sound, or any, any kind of sense experience. So you're far from the sense realm. And your kilesas are completely at bay. In fact, you will have had to work very strongly with the four establishments of mindfulness before you can even really work with the bojanga. Have you done those? How are your contemplations? How is your awareness? What is the quality of your present moment awareness? How much are the kilesas still infecting your experience? So once you can do that, then you'll begin to have a natural occurrence, a natural uprising. It's like we have a, a little building coming up here. We have to drop a well. And the well diggers said it's, it's solid rock. And I had these moments of worry. What if they can't reach water because they charge by how many feet they have to dig? But after 110 or something feet, they hit so much water that they said we could pipe in a subdivision, not just the, just the kuti. So we were just so happy. We have so much water. So that's, the, that's sort of like your well diggers. You're digging into the well of the heart. And once you dig properly, smoothly, with, with a, a precision and not wasting, your, your tool is very, very well, well healed to get right down 
to the nearest strata of water and you hit this aquifer and your mind becomes serene. You start to experience that piti and that pasadi. Those come as a result of your dedication and your devotion and your, your love of this path of the journey. And then if you keep seeing things, whatever is in front of you, whatever is in front of you will be revealed to you. You'll be able to see it as it truly is. You'll see its ultimate characteristics. You won't be interested in, in it anymore as a sense experience. So your mind will become extremely joyful. And then that's when the bojanga begin to happen effortlessly until you reach the place of samadhi. Your samadhi is really stable. It's like, you know, this boat is concrete. It's truly here. It's not going anywhere. And so it's that kind of stability, like it's immovable. Your mind is unshakable, imperturbable. And that's when you have upeka. And from that quality of upeka, Nibbana is ready. It's not a place. It's, it's an opening of the heart to that which is already there. It's a complete overriding of all movement, a complete stilling till there is no more point where a self can position itself. You become completely selfless. So you cannot act from self. You cannot strive from that for that. It has to unfold by putting in the right causes and conditions. And then whatever is in front of you, nothing about it will be hidden from you anymore. The truth of the moment will be yours to see with your inner eye, with your Dhamma eye. In brief. Hi, <laughs> this is Mary. You mentioned anger. It's something I struggle with in terms of conditions that are going on in terms of racism and inequality. And, you know, at times I think that, you know, I see anger as being an impetus for change. And I understand intellectually that it can't be from ill will, but somehow I keep looking or thinking that there's, there's an aspect of anger that is not, you know, that is from goodwill, not ill will. Can you say a little more about anger? And I don't know if I understood your question correctly, you're saying that you think there's an aspect of anger that is coming from goodwill? Right, like motivation for change that is for the good. Um, I think there might be a different way to explain that. People who create world systems are probably coming from some level of not understanding reality, not having a clue about the Four Noble Truths, suffering, its cause, the possibility for ending it, and the way to end it. And they, they may be motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion. And so the systems they're working in 
are translated through their greedy, hateful, and deluded actions. And the way they interpret the system convention or conventions is harmful. So we have to be careful not to think that wanting that to change is, is coming from anger, but it's coming from an understanding that what is happening is unwholesome and shouldn't be happening. So all you're trying to do is save life. You're trying to follow precepts. So I would say that that's a wholesome motivation. But if you see it as wanting change, yes, you're wanting people to, for the sake of the well-being of all beings everywhere, you want to see some virtue happening here. And when virtue is being violated, you see the unwholesomeness of that. And you know that that will not be a benevolent condition for anyone. And if it gets worse and worse and worse, then the society becomes more and more decadent. We have to understand that world systems do arise and cease and wars come and go and violence erupts and takes over social systems and they degrade and fall apart. And then out of the ashes comes something new and wonderful and that subsists for a while and then it also degrades and uh, is broken and a lot of suffering happens because we're in the realm of the world. We're not in a perfect realm. This is not an enlightened realm at all, but it's a realm of suffering. And it's also a realm of non-suffering. There's a lot of goodness and a lot of kindness. And out of kindness and compassion for the perpetrators and for the victims of these unwholesome acts, you're, you are asking for change. You are voting for change. If you demand change and you, you use wrong speech, avoid that. Don't break precepts to ask for change. We ask for change in ways that are informed, educated, awake, virtuous, wholesome, unharmful, peaceful, compassionate gentle. Look at the power of Gandhi's movement for change. But not many people even know about him anymore. In my lifetime, Gandhi was such a hero. He was a real hero. But you see, because things continue to degrade, and they may degrade more and more and more before the world is so broken that it, it just falls flat on its face. And who knows if this world will arise again, but it might. So we work towards changing things in wholesome ways. We don't, we're not, if we're working from anger, we're just following, as the Buddha said, do not follow others. They, they work from anger, from resentment, from uh, denigration, you know, denigrating from anger, and we don't. That's our mandate, our nundate. <laughs> We're nuns. <laughs> Nibbana is not through justice in the world. That's not Nibbana, because Nibbana is 
not of this world. This world has no justice in it. We try to establish systems that can provide just situations. And for a while they do. And then they get in the hands of people that are completely insensitive and, and you're back to square one. That's the nature of this world. We have to understand it's impermanent. All these conditions are on a, a sliding scale and it's, it's usually it's a, a downward descent. But those of us that have the courage and, and the virtuous commitment to, to wholesomeness, to skillful action, to skillful change, then we're gonna try to set up things differently so that we can be compassionate to everyone. Look what happened in South Africa. So much forgiveness. Oh, breathtaking. It's possible. But then it breaks down again because everything is in a constant state of breaking down, including our bodies, minds, all of it. We practice for enlightenment within these conditions. Because the Buddha said, the place where there is both non-suffering and suffering, or suffering and, and the escape from suffering, is the most ideal condition for this practice and fulfillment of the Eightfold Noble Path. I want to thank you because you remind us Dhamma is our best protection, but sometimes the uncertainty is so powerful to, to, to draw us down and uh, be commitment to Dhamma practice, but our mind is still between the negative and the positive. Can you tell just one most important thing to uh, teach us how to stay in nurture state mind? If you are thinking, then you're suffering. So if there's thinking going on, it's going to degenerate quite quickly into thoughts that could take you into doubtful mind states or negative mind states. But if you're not thinking, there's a better chance. So practice contemplations that can bring you joy and go beyond thought. So that would be concentration practices and chanting practices. And I won't go into it very much because we don't have time, but they're very powerful. And in times when I've been struggling to get fed and feeling very insecure because everything was so uncertain, but I was hungry, then in, in those times, I did a lot of chanting. And when I did a lot of chanting, my mind was focused on remembering the words. So I wasn't thinking negative thoughts. I was just trying to remember chants, which were chants of praise or well-wishing for myself and other beings, or chants of loving kindness or chants of compassion. So the mind was occupied with wholesome things. And you make a lot of merit. When you make so much merit, you're investing in goodness. When the goodness grows and grows and grows, you reach a threshold of punya, a threshold of so much good kama that your mind has a harder time to follow the old habits. 
साधु थैंक यू सो मच The word shame for me kind of sticks in my craw a bit because it has a sense of um, being fundamentally flawed. Not accurate though. Yeah. So could you say more about that? Because uh, you did use the word shame, and I I thought, how can I spin that? Well, first of all, language is frail, and. I'm allowed to borrow words from other traditions and I do all the time because I don't I think we're all part of one tradition and it's called the human condition. So in other languages it would be a different word it would be translated. But we have to let go of those identities or those associations as much as we can and see the value of that word. It's it's speaking about unwholesomeness and the danger. It's not a punishment. It's not that you're a bad person, but that you've been led into a dangerous posture, and you want to revert from it as fast as possible. Like you've backed your car onto a cliff, and your tires are slipping. What do you do? So you stop as quickly as possible. So when we get into unwholesome states of mind, we have to have moral fear. Oh my goodness, what am I doing? This is really not going to be good. I could hurt myself, or I could hurt somebody else. So you stop, and so it's more like having a conscience, a sense of what is right and what is wrong, what will help and what won't. And please take out any barbs from historical inputs. I like using the word grace, and other people say, "Well, that's Christian." It's not. It's just a word. It has the word doesn't know that it's anything. It doesn't belong to anyone. Everyone can experience grace. I experience the grace of this practice every single day. Sometimes I feel in a state of grace. What does that mean? I'm not a theist. I trust in the Buddha's understanding of the cosmos. It's profound. He knew more than many of the scientists of today. How's that? Because he was fully awake, completely awake. He had a breadth of knowledge that scientists still cannot explain. They're only slightly catching up, in some ways. Einstein certainly—he was a very spiritual man. So, speaking of borrowing words. This is from the Gospel of Thomas. You know, it's one of the gospels that was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I believe. Know what is in front of you, and what is hidden from you, will be revealed to you. So many people do not know what phenomena appearing in consciousness really are, but when we study. The mind, more and more and more, we begin to understand the true nature of these phenomena, and we see them as arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing, and we know what are their characteristics. You tell me, they're impermanent. They're in each other, dukkha. They're unsatisfactory, and they're empty. But most people don't know that language, and when you begin to understand the intimate. 
intrinsic emptiness of all phenomena within you, then you'll see that everything that we experience and that we do and enact and embody has moral repercussions and that everything we've brought with us is being manifest through a moral law. It's a law. The karmic law is a moral law. For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. If we follow that moral law, then everything will be revealed to us. Everything. And there is nothing buried that will not be raised. So anything that we try to hide that isn't true, it'll be revealed. There's nothing you can hide. The truth always is manifest at some point. And so it is with kama, karma. We can't hide from our karma. But if we carry a lot of difficult karma from previous lives, then what we can do in this life is quickly cultivate as much good karma as we can and be free from it once and for all. Morally free. Morally free. Purified. 